Welcome, friends, to the show. This is Eric Wright, the host of your Disco Posse podcast. We are going to be celebrating a really cool milestone very soon, so keep on listening. Hit that subscribe button, and if you can, please give us a rating and some comments. We really, really love getting the feedback. I've got a ton. We're, we're actually stacking up. It also helps with the ranking, so which is really cool, so thank you. We're ranking all over the place, and we're loving it. With that, this episode is brought to you by our good friends and longtime supporters at Veeam Software. Veeam have been a longtime fan and, and supporters of both my blog and, and this show. So it's uh, with due respect and due acknowledgement that I want to send you over to the good friends at Veeam. Go to vee.am forward slash disco posse and you can find out more. But really, in a nutshell, it's your ultimate data protection suite across the board. They've got cool things for cloud, for on-premises, for your data center, for your containers and cloud native, for your SaaS platforms. Literally back it all up. Uh, one platform, one fantastic team. So go check it out. Go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse and you can find out more. Also, make sure you go and check out my latest book. Go on to velocityclosing.com and you can download the four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos that win deals. If you want to connect better with customers and be able to deliver winning demos that lead to closed deals, this is the place to go. It's a really wicked, cool, concise ebook, and there's an audiobook read by yours truly. So go check it out. Go to velocityclosing.com and download today. We actually got a really cool special on. This show is featuring Sean Heine. Sean is one of the founders of SignalWire. SignalWire are doing incredible things around the, the challenge of being the largest telecom platform. So actually they're the underlay behind a ton of stuff that you didn't even realize is driving this. Uh, they've got a, a huge background as far as a technology team and a founding team, but Sean just goes into so much. We get into technical stuff, we get into business, we get into societal challenges and Actually, we've got a great announcement coming up soon about this. So check out the show and you'll find out more later. Hey, I'm Sean Heine, one of the founders of SignalWire, and you're listening to the Disco Posse podcast. We'll jump right in. Uh, so, Sean Heine, uh, thank you very much for for joining. Uh, I've been doing a lot of background. It was funny when I had the opportunity to speak to you. I I was like, oh my, this is when you lift have your list of guests that you're really interested in. Uh, you were on it, so I was going to chase you down anyway. So I'm glad that we were able to to make this happen. Yeah, it's uh, great to be here. This is a really great podcast, and I love how how deep you can dive into subjects. And and for that reason, this is why you're going to be perfect for for us uh, because we've you got a lot of really cool history and so. But first of all, let's introduce you to the folks. Uh, uh, talk about yourself and let's jump into SignalWire at, at the start, and then we'll kind of get into some other background and and how it came to be and how you came to be. Sure. So uh, yeah, I mean. Um kind of a, a classic story for kind of uh, growing up in the height of the dot-com bubble. Um, you know, uh, when I was uh, 12, um, the internet was just kind of being born in the early 90s. And uh, my local community had no way to connect to the internet. Um, so uh, 
I started a local bulletin board service, you know, at age 12. And then that eventually evolved into a community ISP and hosting company. And then I got involved into uh, network security and formed uh, one of the early managed um, software as a service companies in 2002, 2003. And we did managed vulnerability scanning back in the days when Visa and MasterCard were first starting to put rules around uh, website security. And we sold that to a company in Silicon Valley. So that, that started, started me off on a very young age of coming out to the Valley. So it was in Michigan until about 22 and then came out to the Valley. And uh, when I did that, I met the, the folks at Barracuda Networks, uh, who at the time had one early product. And uh, they convinced me to come on to um, launch new products under their brand, they had a very strong brand. And launched, you know, over a course of eight years and through IPO, about half of the products in the product portfolio where, you know, learned a lot about um, launching and scaling products from zero to, you know, hundreds of million. Yeah, it's the interesting thing that I, it's a rare, very rare persona in that you're able to have the understanding of what the business of products is, but you're a very technical founder and a technical product manager. And I, 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 I put that not in that you are a product manager, but no, I'm a product a guy. I'll, I'll yeah. take that title proudly. Um, the, the, the titles kind of changed. I mean, the, the role has changed, I think in tech, uh, industries in the tech industry, since I started when I, you know, in 2003, four, when I first came out to the Valley, a product manager was a pretty prestigious position. And, um, you're, you know, essentially the functional CEO for a product line. And um, I, I was lucky to have a great uh, mentor, uh, an MIT grad that came out of Oracle and a bunch of other successful startups that I learned from. So I learned what I consider old school product management from you know brilliant old school product managers. And um, you know, over time, and I don't know if it's the agile processes or you know whatever has changed about the development process, that role of product managers it's, it's functionally diminished and kind of changed, but. Um, I find myself a product guy at heart and I'm always thinking about the product and the customer and, you know, how to make things that people will appreciate. Well, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. I, and I would, I would posit that you're right in that the industry has diminished it as a true function, but every successful startup has the sort of pulled through the, the original function and, and capability set that a product manager needs. Cause I've seen, I product manager is like CIO was in the nineties. They called it CIO stood for career is over. You just got shoved into the spot. You were like on special projects for 18 months. It was your retirement. They just right. want to bridge you until you're, you hit your numbers. But now CIO is critical to the business and product manager. And the same thing you were, you had to understand the product. You had to understand how it was going to be consumed, why it needed to be consumed, how to tell the story, and, the, and also technically understand how to build it. And today I find we've reversed it where now people are becoming product managers because no one else will take the title. And it leads yeah, it's, to it's, it's, terrible It's not disarray. a great job anymore. And <laughs> you know, the, the, the mentor that I had, because I came from being a CEO of my own startup to a product manager in a hundred person company. And um, you know, the way he positioned it, because it was a little frustrating at first because I was used to having just kind of direct control over everything that happened. And that was no longer the case. The product manager really doesn't have any direct control. But um, what he what he 
showed me was, uh, and this is a gentleman named Steve Paug, a brilliant guy. He showed me um, the art of influence management. And so, um, you know, over years at Barracuda, I learned how to use uh, persuasion and influence in order to achieve my objectives rather than having direct control. And that's, if you can master that, you know, you can, you can accomplish a lot, especially in these large organizations. It becomes the interesting thing of, especially as a product manager and people that are in, in marketing, people that are even in, you know, a lot of the technical functions inside a, a company, I tell them like what they say, what should I read? And if I wanted to learn about the business or so read thinking fast and slow, read, never split the difference. Like this is the actual stuff that's going to help you to build products. Cause you have to understand either how it's going to be taken at face value. And then how do you influence how it can be taken and understood and used. And it's, uh, I, I find that's the, the gap that people have is they think that's like the technical team's over here, we put up a firewall and the sales team's over here and marketing stands on top of the firewall and, and just tosses buckets back and forth. Yeah, it, it, luckily when I was growing up in that world, um, the product manager was functionally the glue between all those organizations. They really didn't talk to each other and there was no coherent direction unless the product manager was pulling everyone in that way. And I, you know, I, I don't think it's exactly that way anymore. I've been out of, out of the PM game a little bit, but um, you know, we're a strong product organization now and um, you know, pro, uh, we have excellent uh, product leadership and it's very important. Um, so, you know, we're SignalWire kind of operates on an old school product management philosophy. And, and uh, the success is uh, indicative of, of that model, I think. So let's talk about signal wireless. Let's lay it down. What's your, what's your one liner? You said, what's the problem that, that you folks are solving right now? Well, we're, it's a very technical operation, but uh, at a high level, we're building the next generation of AT&T's tech, you know, kind of AT&T 2.0. And that means a lot in today's world, um, we're really, we, what we've really been working on is building a communications cloud infrastructure, an elastic communications cloud infrastructure, kind of an AWS or Google Cloud specifically for voice, video, and messaging. And um, we have quite a legacy in that. I, I see that uh, uh, I, I liked your graphic, the nerd life uh, graphic <laughs> yeah. on your site. Uh, we actually call ourselves the OGs, the original geeks. Uh, I because, love that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, like, there's not Googlers here. There's, there's just the OGs at SignalWire. And um, we, we think we can claim that title because, um, because of our history. Uh, we're born out of an open source project called FreeSwitch which was a community project started about 15 years ago by three guys, including our CEO, Anthony Minasali. They wrote millions of lines of code over the years and um, over time became the de facto standard for building enterprise applications or infrastructure. So every major ILEC in every, you know, in every country on the planet is likely running FreeSwitch. Uh, almost every major communication technology company uh, that has a successful product is running some element of our technology, some of it critically. You know, companies like Dialpad uh, run it critically. Uh, even even companies like Twilio and Bandwidth.com are, you know, those were direct competitors with us are are, oops, are, um, are 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 doing it critically as well. And that's the interesting thing. Now, this is where the uh, I'll I often show it's like the the snake eating its own tail in a way because. You're, you're creating platforms and products that are ultimately also consumed by in-market 
competitors. How does, so how do you weigh out how that works as you, the more successful you are on consumption of your product, effectively you're also creating your own, I wouldn't say enemy, but you're yeah. a competitor in the space. It's, uh, that's a very fair point. And I'll tell you coming from, uh, more of an IT centric, uh, place in technology, network security and, um, coming over to telecom was kind of, um, an eye opener for me. It's a really niche kind of thing and very ancestral. Um, you'd be surprised like how many of the, the leading tech companies buy from each other. You know, Twilio yeah. and Bandwidth are public competitors. They're publicly traded on the market. They label each other as direct competitors, yet they're still buying from each other. Twilio is one of Bandwidth's largest customers. And it's just, that's just how it, it works in telecom. So uh, I might, I don't know if you've read this, but, um, you know, Eric Wan from Zoom, the CEO of Zoom is an investor of ours. Yeah, and, that's that was why when I looked over your investor list, I was like, "Wow, that's you know." At some point down the road, we'll see almost like the like when Eric Schmidt was on the board at Apple, and of course, once they got deeper into the phone game, they he said, "Okay, I gotta now. I have to step back right. because we are very directly competing." So it's, but it was it's it's a testament to the belief in what you're doing as a mission when your competitors are saying. I want you to succeed because then ultimately they, the market gets better, the more yeah. products that are out there. Well, there's no question that, um, those kind of focusing in a, a, a COVID forward technology product, like all those tides are lifting clearly. And, you know, zoom is kind of at the forefront of it, but you know, the, the, the quick little story with Eric is that, um, you know, we went, they're using our tech, uh, they use it for, um, you know, a product called Zoom Phone, which they're putting a lot of emphasis in. And um, Eric came to us and he's like, hey, I want to invest personally, but uh, look, don't do video. Doing video is a bad idea. And we just didn't <laughs> listen to him. So, yeah, so we're, we're, we've, um, with COVID, you know, we, we, we were a fully distributed company since inception. You know, we're Sand Hill Road funded, kind of classic Silicon Valley, but um, in the non-classic Silicon Valley way, we were fully distributed. So, you know, the CEOs in, in Milwaukee and I'm in the Great Lakes and we're, we're all kind of spread out throughout the world. And we cherry picked some of the best engineers from the free switch community, kind of build our next generation technology. So we're, we're all over and we've kind of developed our own tool that we codenamed Cantina, um, you know, that uses our APIs and our technology that, that, that serves as our virtual office. Right. And, um, you know, always on video, video room centric. Um, we end up developing a lot of features and functions to make it more akin to coming into a real office. And, and we actually believe it was more efficient. We can imagine working another way. Then COVID hit and our API customers are like, hey, how do we use this thing that we're using with you when we talk to you? I'm like, ah, you know, is this a business we want to get into? Like, this is a totally different thing. And you're right, you know, we're trying to equip developers with our technology. We're not trying to compete with them. But what we ultimately decide is that since we're sitting on some of the best technology here and, and the demand, like we were just getting incredible demand that we couldn't ignore. Um, we decided it was better to make great reference design that was actually a full functional product and put it out there just and, and, and see, you know, get the feedback and get people using our tech and actually get it in people's hands. And ultimately, you know, I, I, I've worked at a few successful companies 
the lead flow that we're, we've seen since this is just incredible. Like we're getting fortune 100 companies, like media, it's an eight week old product and fortune 100 companies are, are clawing at us. We've got two of the major broadcast studios using our technology to capture, you know, kind of um, remote acting, you know, in high quality, things like that. Uh, we're doing live concerts where a hundred people in the audience can interact with the performer and they can hear them and clap with them and hear their screams and feed off the energy of the audience. And I think because of our video um, legacy, because of the, the high quality we're able to deliver and the we're able to mux, you know, hundreds of people on the screen and audio ends up making a more connected experience. And I think people are longing for tech that, you know, is something different than Zoom, you know, something different than the formal start and stop and makes you feel a little more connected to humans. And, you know, that's what we're focusing our tech on right now is just let's let's get the tech to deliver the stuff that people need there. What you you really bring up a, a neat point that that's the big differentiator that has yet to have been unlocked is this you know the multiplexing audio especially because look we have like my the company that I work at we do our our every week we have our, our all company meeting so you've got hundreds of people on these sessions and then you, you just want to say hey where's our new hires and so okay everybody clap and then you hear you see everybody doing this and then you hear one clap because so lame course. have you have you seen everybody doing like, you, your audio listeners can't see it, but the but the the magic hands or the handshake is like oh this is so lame not at signal wire like at signal wire you can actually hear everybody we all talk at the same time and we're all laughing it's 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 hard to kind of explain because you haven't seen this in zoom or teams or hangout or whatever and and i know this is a technical show so i'm happy to talk about some of the tech that enables us to do things like that um but it, it is a really real advantage and you know, it, we preserve things like video orientation of people on the screen. So, you know, I don't know if, if you're used to Zoom and Hangouts, you might not even notice that they're doing this, but they use tricks like they only will display the person talking in full resolution. Right. And then everyone else is a tiny little thumbnail. And then it kind of switches the video all the time yeah. between who's talking so that it only has to capture that one person's feed in high quality and everyone else is getting the reason why that's the case. Um, is because when um, the technology like uh, and meet and hangouts and uh, you know most most of the video platforms do this, um, they take each video stream and send uh, they send out your video stream to every participant in the conference. So if there's eight people in there, your your local machine is encoding and transmitting a video and audio stream to every one of those participants. So one on one may go great, two people, three people. You start to get a lot more people in there. And uh, unless you're everyone's on great bandwidth or something, you really start having a kind of a sketchy level quality conversation where SignalWire, we support a technology called MCU, where we actually um, mux all that up in the cloud, which is a lot more work and a lot harder to do. This is why these people don't do this. But you transmit one feed video and audio to our cloud and our cloud takes those feeds from everybody, you know, the, clo the, the locally closest distributed node. Um, takes those feeds from everybody, mashes it up, and distributes it out to everyone as one feed. So you're only sending and receiving one feed. And that's pretty incredible for not only video and audio quality, because we can preserve that, but um, battery usage, energy usage, data usage, um, it makes a big difference. And then because we're controlling the feed, because we're controlling what's being sent out to everyone, we can put on layers of video. 
layers of audio. We can put on transcription. We can preserve, and this is this is one part that I think is is, is subconscious, but really as the uh, connection is, we preserve everyone's video orientation. So, um, kind of like the Brady Bunch, if I'm on the top of the row, I'm always on the top of the row for everyone else on the screen. If I look down, the person who is below me is always below me. Is and relative so you start, to your position, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it sounds weird, but you start to have a little like virtual physical orientation, and it adds to the connected experience of of, of the platform. And it's it's nuanced things like that that can be like fundamentally different in the experience. It's like even when they talk about like when video and audio encoding is just slightly off. I forget what the differential is. It's but it's fairly small. It's literally like, you know, it's like half if it's a half a second difference or less, you can get away with it. But at what are there's like a point where however many milliseconds it is that the mouth. Yeah, is, you don't. So you don't have a the, lot of leeway in, yeah. in voice and audio. You're exactly right. Like almost every other application, you know, streaming, it doesn't matter if you buffer, like you're only receiving the data. Um, right. And if you're not having a real-time conversation, it doesn't matter if it's buffered. But for real-time voice and video, like getting the data there on time and in sync is critical. And uh, it's a tough thing to do. And um, in our SignalWire API nodes, like we aim to have everyone at least 70 milliseconds or less from one of our nodes. And, uh, you know, that's that's the goal. And we're continuing to grow our infrastructure as our usage uh, grows. But, yeah, if, that, if you're under 100 milliseconds, you're not going to notice latency. Right. And uh, the cool stuff, I know, I'm, I'm sure you're following Starlink, but with the, with the space oh, lasers, yeah. <laughs> um, we're, we're going to be 300 milliseconds away from anybody on the planet pretty soon and and that's going to be incredible for real time communication. I I'm always I, I've got this funny thing that I saw the other day and it was somebody talking about like the stargazers are kind of a little upset because they're like oh you know all the satellites are are messing up our night shots. I'm like I really do enjoy those beautiful night shots. However, perhaps giving the world access to each other in real time would maybe trumps those old school night shots that we we really like <laughs> I, I think i can uniquely speak on this if you want because um i live on an island in the great lakes right now i'm about as remote as you could be at the six people <laughs> per square mile where wow, i live okay. so it's like alaska-esque density um i'm connected to you right now via starlink beta connection um i actually have two starlink betas and um, I did take, after Barracuda's IPO, I took a year sabbatical uh, on this island where I spent a good amount of time taking photographs of Aurora Borealis and the night sky and things. So I'm, wow. ki I'm kind of right in between uh, the conflict there. And um, yeah, I'm on the side of progress. You know, <laughs> yeah. we've got night skies. And um, ultimately, the reason why those satellites are messing up photographers' photos is because you're doing a long exposure shot right and so if you're just to look at the sky you might you you're probably not going to see those satellites if you do it's just a blip um, but if you're doing a 30 second long exposure shot you're going to see streaks of those things across the sky well you know that's you're doing a 30 second shot you're basically taking a video so um i think technology will progress where you, you can take shots of the sky and have it not be a 30 second exposure and that'll kind of catch up with itself and things will kind of be fine it's the on the side of progress too, this is where see, you're in a bit of a dichotomy, right? You you effectively live a what some would would say is a good 
ruralish, you know, rural-esque sort of life, but yet you're so deeply entrenched in the technology. And I'm I'm with you on that one. I actually kind of love the idea that I should be able to split the line, enjoy one and also enjoy the other. How does that affect you in your kind of day-to-day in, in your own headspace, John? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair enough question. I mean, I feel like um, I'm in the matrix, you know, and and, and, and Signal Wire Tech is a part of that because I can collaborate well with my my coworkers where I, there isn't much loss in not being physically present with them. And, and prior to COVID, I was spending a lot of time in the Valley and depending on the role in the company, I think the FaceTime is critical. And then fundraising traditionally in the Valley, like just that face-to-face contact has been critical. And, and you know, we did a fundraise about a year and a half ago, and that was all, you know, Sand Hill Road driving, seeing people face to face and spending time and making relationships. And um, I guess the jury's out on exactly, um, you know, to date being remote hasn't affected because I can, I, I could just, I could spend time where I needed to when, when it physically made sense. And uh, being remote actually adds to my efficiency personally. But you know, we'll see how that breaks out. We'll see how, I mean, I guess the fundraising is continuing to go on. There's large funds and everyone's meeting virtually. And, um, you know, it looks like the world's kind of folding into the direction I was headed anyway. So, I, you know, I'm not sure it's, it's much of a handicap. It's, it's interesting that we've had to adapt. And, you know, I've often, you know, the company I was with before where I am now, you know, I got hired in, in Vancouver that was where the data center was. That's where the major team was for IT. And I was the systems architect. So it was like, they're like, oh, of course you have to be here. And that was very much, and and there was a value to being in person, building relationships, doing stuff hands-on in, in the room and stuff like that. And it was funny when I then had to move across the country to Toronto a few years later, I said, well, you know, I, I couldn't have got hired remotely. So uh, I'm just going to let you know, I have to move for family reasons. And, and they said, oh, okay, well, let's just get you new business cards. You know, you'll work out of the Toronto office. That's fine. That's where the trade desk is and such. I'm like, oh, but it was interesting that I wouldn't have been able to be hired, but had I built the relationship now, I could take it with me. So what's, yeah, I, what you were finding, I think what you just described is in transition, we've adapted, but no one's done the, I'm going to build a startup entirely over video right now. Like it's, and very few have very few have attempted yeah i mean that it's been done by irc uh, a couple times you know for some (laughs) open source startup um but uh yeah i think when we we were out in sand hill road prior to covid um i even even the more progressive large firms that you would think would be a little more open-minded about this were still pretty scared by the idea that they couldn't drive down the street and look the team in the eye that they just gave $15 million to or whatever. Yeah. I, it, I, I think they all realize that was wrong now. You know, it's a different world. I, I see a huge potential that Silicon Valley, I'll say like, like DevOps, it's not a place, it's, it's, a, it's a mindset. And I believe that Silicon Valley and the Sand Hill Road now has the potential to adapt very rightly to by where you are, where you talked about folks that are in, in Wisconsin. There's a, a ton of tech, you know, they talk about the sort of the Silicon Prairie and all these different areas yeah. where we're seeing people, why do we need to be 
you know, oh, what was it? Slack was my favorite one. They like Slack at one point had a, a job application and it said like work for the company that creates the best remote experiences, allows developers to live anywhere, must live in the Valley. And it was like, <laughs> you had to be in, you had to be in the Bay right. area to get the job at Slack. And like, I don't think you, I don't think it means. What no, you think it means. <laughs> no. And I, I think we're going to see just like you're seeing probably the earliest indicators of the real estate industry uh, around Silicon Valley. And you're, you're seeing a lot of the the folks from the large tech companies that have ruled that not coming back to work in the near future, start to move out, you know, start to go grab a million dollar mansion back where they lived and not instead of an 800 square foot shack. And um, I think, I think we'll see the investment world also kind of trickle that way. Uh, when I was, you know, starting a, a seat or a, a security company in, in my 20s in Michigan, there was literally no money in Michigan, zero. You know, there was no very little tech startups. I mean, the, yeah. the old conservative money and the chances of getting funding like next to none. Like, so, you know, I, I had to bootstrap. And then when I went out to the Valley and it's like, okay, these people just get this, you know, but since, um, you know, Ann Arbor is, a, it's had, uh, you know, a, a friend, Doug Song, started a very successful company called Duo Security that sold for like $2.8 to Cisco in Ann Arbor. And, yeah. um, you know, Ann Arbor is, has grown up. So I, I think people have figured out that you just got to go where there's smart people. And um, Silicon Valley attracted some of the smartest people in the world because you had, like you said, you had to go there for the best jobs, but that's changed. And now you, you'll be able to get smart people in other places. Yeah, it was really, uh, ultimately it was centered around Stanford, right? And, and uh, that became the epicenter and the Sand Hill Roads positioning was was based on that. And, and it's, <clears throat> excuse me, so funny that you see even folks today that are, and I work with them all the time, right? I get talk to investors and and founders like they have their own company, they're three years in, they're just coming out of stealth, they're super proud of it, and yet their cup they use their Stanford email address. And it's this neat little sort of like, oh, look at you know, I, I think that's gonna start to shift. And and I'm glad uh, because I really do think the not just distributed workforce, but distributed belief that we don't have to be within a an epicenter of of Stanford or you know, MIT or wherever it is. You know, obviously, like, so you've got Boston, big startup scene, makes sense, right? You've got Silicon Valley, you know, Columbia produced a lot of, a lot of folks that came out of there. And so a lot of chief scientists, you know, still use that Columbia address and such. And I think the Silicon Valley risk profile was always higher than the rest of the country. And I, I feel like the rest of the country's risk profile has been raised you know, after the years of success of Silicon Valley and, you know, the markets are great. And what are, really, what are you going to invest in? Like, if you really want to make some money right now and you're going to throw your mar money into some investment, what are you, you, you going to invest in? I don't know. Energy? Is that maybe? I, nothing's going to grow as fast as, the, you know, the tech around this transition. I think it, I think we've globally recognized that there's a, a massive transition, social transition happening to remote collaboration. And uh, I personally don't think there's, a, there's an area of the economy that's more primed to grow quickly. It's uh, the other challenge we face societally, right, is that usually, especially that I'm watching, I've been watching startups for a long time, we, we use the word exploit. Exploit is often has two sides of it. Exploit is, is leveraging or taking advantage. And I really have seen a shift in that tech that's coming out that's targeting 
how to get through this experience of the world and COVID and such, much more leverage and provide advantage to customers more so than exploit as a pure, like, all right, there's a drought. Let's get some lemonade stands up, kids. Uh, it. I really see that there's a lot of a lot more ethical exploitation. <laughs> if that's a, a way. Yeah, exploitation it. isn't always bad. Um, yeah. you, you can you can exploit gaps in a market, and that's not right. a bad thing. You're not hurting anyone. You're just seeing opportunity, and that's that's exploiting stuff. And I, I agree with you. Like, it seems to be a lot less. Um, at least in this round, a lot less grabbing low hanging fruit as it is actually, you know, putting some thought into forward thinking and like, let's spend some time and actually figure out how we're going to solve this problem. And uh, yeah, it's encouraging. I, I do hope that uh, it also allows us to come up on the other side because what we've got of like the world is slowing down in many areas and we are, we are going to have a lot of people that are not going to, have the opportunities that we in tech or that are already in remote situations have. So there's going to be a, a really tough transition for a lot of folks. And this is not like hashtag learn to code stuff. This is literally like we all have to protect each other. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I spent some time thinking about what the world's going to be like at 30 years and, you know, kind of a sidetrack, but I just can't imagine we're living in a place, you know, 30 years from now where software is not better at just about everything. And, uh, you know, how does that change the world? I think that's something everyone should be thinking about. Like, how does that change their life? Like I've got young kids and I'm thinking about, you know, what is their, what, when they're 20, when they're 30, what is the world going to look like? And, and I'm trying to plan my life around that anticipation. And talk about kids. Uh, you're 12 years old. You get an idea <laughs> and you did what, most people in that time period and at that age would say, oh, Jesus, there's Sean. He's, he's a little different. <laughs> you yeah, took on an interesting task. It's the, so you were, were you born entrepreneurial? When did it kick in that you said, I'm going to do this thing and other people are going to jump in? I think I always kind of had the instinct to follow my own path and uh, the instinct to kind of follow a path away from people. And then, you know, at a very young age, like I got my first computer from an uncle at age eight. You know, my parents were not even, were not technical at all. My dad was a high school football coach and, um, you know, my mom was a hygienist and very Midwest kind of exposure, but I got a computer at eight and I just dove into it. You know, it's, it was like, oh my God, you know, this is something that I, it was just unlimited. And then when I got like a 1200 baud modem and I could dial into Bakersfield, California and actually like communicate with other people and the people on the other side didn't discriminate me because of my age. You know, they didn't know if I was 30 or 12, you know, they right. just, in fact, most people presumed I was an adult because I was on this, you know, bulletin board. And so I, I found it very a relief. Like I could communicate with other people at the highest intellectual level. And, um, I loved the tech. I loved learning. I learned a lot about other people from other people that were in that era. People were very, you know, helpful. Like, let me help get your web server set up. Let's help you understand what SMTP is. And, um, you know, I ended up learning about the early, early, early protocols of the internet and, and, um, you know, based on my parents being upset with me, 
racking up $200 a month in <laughs> long distance calls. Um, I was like, Hey, let's, let's see if we can figure out, uh, there was a, there was an ISP in, in Flint, the big town next door. And I was like, let's get some people together and see if we can rally and, uh, get, get a, get a local version of this up. And we did and did that throughout, you know, most of high school. The, uh, there was actually a, I can't remember the name of the series. It was like a mini, a small series or like, maybe it was like a short film that was actually about, uh, Michigan small startups and, uh, Goodness gracious, I, I, this is where I should have a producer that would be looking it up on the side for me and, and putting it on screen. But I really did like that they were presenting folks that wouldn't be your sort of traditional air quotes uh, founders. But the truth is, a 12-year-old wouldn't be a traditional founder. Uh, a 50-year-old wouldn't be a traditional. Like all of these stories, we assume that there there's no real tradition here. I mean, it's no, just exactly. Like Jack Dorsey from a uh, you know, if you as a he's from a small town, small town lifestyle in the Midwest, right? There's all these these stories, and you know, like none of these people, by their birth and their upbringing, should have been successful as Silicon Valley founders. Which I think is f thankful because like there is no profile. <laughs> no, I, I think the boredom of a small town ended up facilitating. <laughs> you know, if I would have been in Manhattan, I don't know, I might have been satisfied with other things. I don't know. Yeah, but, I think that we, a lot more of us would have been at Studio 54 instead right. of over in the loft uh, building products, right? <laughs> over on Pound MP3 on Dalnet IRC Network or whatever. Yeah, yeah well, and it's, it's funny because I grew up on a farm and my my dad was the outlier in the family because he went to Radio College of Canada. It was basically like a technical school and every, literally every single one of my family are either nurses, uh, teachers, mm -hmm. or they worked on the farm or they worked for the town. And so when when my dad went out of the norm, they probably said, "Oh Jesus, there's Dave. He's he's a little different. You know, I don't know why he's." Got We're gonna this. have to bail him out down the line. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Go and see a future there. I left retail to get into tech. You know, having been in tech as a youth, and I took a break and decided to, I found alcohol and girls, and so I, I I I lost my way for a while. But then when I went back to tech, I was successful where I was at, and they're like, you know, oh, you're making a mistake. I don't understand, you know, it's like 1996. They're like, no one gets into technology right now. It's just not, there's no future for you. Like you don't have a job. I don't know, it seems to have worked out pretty good. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's, I, my, my high school class hasn't actually had a class reunion. Um, I've, I've been at over, over 20, we've 15 year, we didn't have one, 20 year, we didn't have one. I don't know why. I think most people didn't leave. So if you don't leave, you don't have to reunite. <laughs> but right. yeah, the reunion um, is, is every, every weekend, right? Yeah. I'm really looking forward to the day because, you know, I, <laughs> those, those kids were all, you know, oh, <laughs> not putting your, putting your time into the internet and the nights and not, not focusing on uh, the grapes of wrath. Yeah. It's, well, and this is the the cool thing of that BBS. The first time you doubt into that BBS, and you, I remember doing that, and like you would post a note on the board, and then like twenty four hours later, you dial in again, and that mm -hmm. was the that was the ding. That was, that was the yeah. that was the notification. You did that was pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. You'd go in, and someone answered, and it was this super asynchronous thing, and it reminded me at the time of I would remember reading about people that would play chess through the mail and they would like literally make their move, right. send it Still to do the overseas, right? It's, yeah. There is a beauty in that asynchronous connection. It was a simpler it, time. Yeah. And I, 
I loved the fact that I live still today. I live this life where I have friends who I won't see for like three years. And then we, we, we get together, you know, and it's like the conversation never stopped. You just immediately are in real time. And then when you're not, you don't miss it and we don't lose something. And I, I love that people can do that because I really worry right now that people are sort of latched onto the, like, I've got to be real time. I've got to be constantly connected and, and such like, no, we, we need it in a lot of ways, but hey, that's my yeah. diatribe of like the, the perils of being digital, but yet not wanting to be locked in and, and fully immersed in it all the time. Yeah. I, I think there's some people you kind of, your relationship as being non real time is better that way. You know, that's good. You know, <laughs> If they if they were your roommate, you know you probably get sick of them in a week. Never talk to them That's again. Right. That's right. Now, talking about teams and connections, you've got an incredibly technical team. And when you came to Barracuda, you were jumping in to a, a super technical organization with a super technical sale. Yeah, very technical customers. You know, we we joke when we talk in marketing and and technical marketing. You're like, don't get caught up in the speeds and feeds. I'm like, kid, we work in speeds and feeds. I, I right. understand that the economic buyer may not be all about that, but the person that's going to use this platform totally into the speeds and feeds. <laughs> yep. So how how do you how like how do you wrangle people who are incredibly technical but yet move the sale and move the product understanding like how do you bridge that gap yeah it's a it's a it's a it's a deep probably tough question uh to answer it's a good question um i can only tell you what the way that works for me and i'm not sure that everyone can do it the same way but um you gotta you gotta be the customer you gotta if you're designing anything, especially technical product, like you're not gonna, if you don't understand the person you're selling to, or the person that's gonna use it, and um, often that person is not as technical as you are, probably more than likely they're not. And so in the case of Barracuda, you know, we we focused on trying to simplify complex IT things and sell to, you know, that IT guy that um, doesn't wanna go out and get certs for like solving a problem. And uh, so, yeah, we had a big challenge in that because we had to take super technical concepts, introduce them to, uh, you know, kind of, you know, hands, all hands, you know, all encompassing IT administrators that, that did everything from voice to, you know, web infrastructure. And we had to take this and, and explain it to them in a way that they could process it and then use it in a short period of time. And there's no way you could do that without actually trying to live as the customer. So, you know, when my first things at Barracuda, you know, I come on as, 20, I think 23 and we had the spam firewall, which was a wild success at the time. And we were just launching what we called the spyware firewall and became the web filter and, um, a brand new product in development, called, uh, which was a load balancer. And at the time, you know, if you wanted a load balancer, you had to buy one from F5 and it cost a hundred thousand dollars or yeah, you have to buy one an, from, it wasn't an easy entry point for sure. <laughs> no, and you had to, or you had to go get Cisco and get a bunch of engineers, super complex and buy a bunch of Cisco hardware. I was like, you're a six figure deal. If, if you wanted high availability on your servers, you had to pay a lot of money. And they said, Hey, Sean, we're, we've got this guy working on a, 
load balancer that we want to sell for cheap. Can you jump in? I've never done load balancing. Um, so, you know, I started installing open source load balancing software and started just kind of embedding myself and like, how would I solve this problem if I was a customer? And with a, within a short period of time, a couple of weeks, I understood load balancing just about as much as anybody. And uh, we built a $2,000 load balancer. And within uh, a year, year and a half became the volume leader, not the, not the, not the dollar leader, but the volume leader in load right. balancing across the world. We ship more load balancers than anyone. There's uh, the immersing yourself as the customer is interesting. And, and I, I like your, your technique and I've my similar sort of experience in doing it when I came to the company that I'm at today, they said, okay, cool. We'll get you through the training and get you through all this stuff. And I was like, no, 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 no. I just get me access to the UI. I I want to figure it out. And because if I, if you tell me how to experience it, then I'm going to begin to move like you want me to. I want to move like I've never seen this before. And I want it to be, I want it to make sense or not make sense so that I can be honest in my reactions. And for like six months, I never took any training. I, and the whole thing was like, I would just dive in, try and do something with it. And it would be like, huh. And then I would show the engineers how I had done it. And they're like, huh, that's weird. No one's ever right. done it that way. <laughs> like, well, it's because you've told them how to do it. And it was either we would uncover a new capability or I found the right way that they had designed it for anyways. Or it was right. like, people are not going to do what you're asking them to do. <laughs> and it helps a lot in, in that product-led kind of mentality. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm always surprised. Um you know, pe people in their roles get to be so niche and um, they don't tend to look outside of their box. And if you just, yeah, put yourself in the mind of the customer, use it as, use your product as a customer, try to understand the mindset of a customer and get out of your little box that, you know, here's your one feature you live on or your one little area of the product that you concentrate on. And yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll discover things. And I'm always surprised to find out how many people don't actually, you know, in large organizations don't understand their products, don't understand what they're selling or don't understand what their coworkers are doing, just their one little area of focus. And you know, that's part of the part of the negative of a really large organization because you get so niched. Yeah, you can really find the disconnection as you as you grow. And I think that more organizations, even the large ones, are are getting they're kind of going back to the core on fundamentals of product-led, customer-centric. You know, it's and anyway, I always laugh when, you know, when I hear the word customer-centric. And when someone I said, how do you define customer centric? They said, we, we want to be able to find customers that really love us. I'm like, that's actually not customer centric at all. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. You want to be, you want to basically give stuff away that you should sell because it matters more that that person is empowered than that your revenue target is hit. As a result, your, the back end of that is your CLTV is going to be huge. Like it will work out in the long run, but you got to start with like, I'm going to kind of give this away. I'm going to help this person without need for reciprocation. Yeah. And if it comes, I, I, it comes. I think it's even simpler than that. I think, I think it's customer centric is listening to the customer, just <laughs> listen to the customer and they will tell you what to do. Yeah. And if you do it, you're going to have something good. It's, it's really easier than people think. Yeah. It's, and, it's no books required ears required, right? <laughs> right. Get stuff, get stuff. If you got an idea, get it in people's hands and listen to them and they'll tell you, like get it, get into other people's hands. They'll tell you what to change. They'll tell you what to fix. They'll tell you what to do to make it better. 
in the people, the product people that listen to their customers and companies that listen to their customers, customer-centric companies end up having great customers that evangelize their technology and, and, and make it viral and, and, and help the power of their marketing. So when you're, you've had a, a lot of successes, earned, deserved, and along the way, something didn't work. So I'm curious, when, when did you have something that either didn't work and, and how, how far was too far before you realized it wasn't actually working? I've had a lot of things that don't work. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. And even as like in my, in my teens, I remember, I don't remember where I read it or heard it, but I remember some stupid thing where it's like, oh, you got to do 10 startups and nine of them will fail and one of them will succeed statistically. And, uh, you know, that kind of drilled into my head is like, I just got to keep, keep the four by four on, you know, keep spinning. And if I do that, you know, things will kind of come together. And so, you know, I've, you've had startups. I think for me, ideas are a dime a dozen. I have great ideas i feel all the time they could potentially be you know marketable businesses but execution is much more difficult and you know where i've failed in the past is the ability to to fully execute um on, a, on an idea and, and part of that has been focused you know if you're not fully committed to a certain idea it's really hard at least it's hard to do multiple things at the same time it's hard not to be fully committed especially in an early stage of a startup um, to its success. And so, you know, I've learned things along the lines, like, um, I had a, a startup for a year and a half that was, um, trying to make, uh, the landlord tenant relationship better because, you know, when I was in California, I was renting something that sucked. It was like horrible. It was like, <laughs> I can't pay my rent online still. And I, you know, it's like the pro I can't self show my apartment and I can't. So, you know, I was pretty passionate. I was like, I think I can solve this with a couple of web forms. You know, it's not tough technology versus the other stuff we've been playing with. So, you know, put together a team. We just failed to execute. You know, it was a good idea. We had a good brand. Um, the team was not able to deliver a product that, and, and I think we made a mistake of not getting in people's hands early enough. Like we wanted to have something really good. We were competing with like Zillow and stuff. And, um, you know, we held back like a year and a half before getting people to sign up and probably should have waited like one month and, uh, you know, just got people in there immediately. When... You look back at those things, how, how many of the lessons informed your, your future successes and how early did you sort of capture some of those and, and share them, not just with your own internal monologue, but like, you know, spread them through the team. How important is the storytelling of the failures to create future success? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Now, recapturing... I think we're, we're, we're constantly, um, at least in the startup world that I'm in, constantly reflecting on prior failures and successes to kind of produce um, patterns. And um, yeah, you can tell, like you, if you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm nearly 40 years old. I've been through enough product life cycles that I know the trajectory of things that are going bad. Like I can, I can tell pretty early on. And I think a lot of experienced people can. And and the old mantra of failing fast is, is a pretty good one. Like if you see things going down a bad path, it's super hard uh, to pull it back. It's really easy just to fail fast and move on to the next thing if it's possible. But yeah, I mean, I think um, lessons learned, you know, uh, uh, for Barracuda, a, a part of my life, I ran a lot of our um, online 
um, lead generation. Most of the, like 80% of the uh, sales from Barracuda came from online leads that we generated ourselves. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had millions of dollars of Barracuda money to spend on uh, digital marketing. So, you know, with their money, I was able to figure out, like, I'm super efficient at spending SignalWire's money on digital marketing. Thank you to the, the, the money <laughs> Barracuda. But, um, yeah, I mean, just just getting the experience, it's, it's hard to kind of have something that is as powerful as just doing these things and learning from it. Now, let's break down uh, some myths for people that are thinking when they hear, and I get this all the time too, they say like, oh, you know, once your company IPOs or you sell a startup, they like as if that's like, whew, you're done. Yeah. So financials and your own personal goals, when you go through a major you know, business event, like an IPO or whatever, what is it actually like versus what a lot of the, the world believes that it, they hear the stories and like, oh, well, this, he's set for life now. <laughs> right. Well, it, it, it can be different depending on the scenario. We could talk about the IPO um, piece a little bit because I, I was a small part of the team that brought Barracuda through that. Um, there are all sorts of regular regulatory controls around a public offering. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not the, I'm, I'm not the best person to get advice on this, but it's not an instant payday for anybody. And um, the the stockholders that are holding the majority of the company um, are on programs where they don't even personally control what they sell. Um, you know, there's, there's attorneys and there's agreed upon selling schedules and um, it can take years, uh, many years, depending on how much holding before you're contractually obligated to even be able to sell any of your interests. So no, it's like, you know, Elon Musk is worth how many billions of dollars, but he has very little cash and he's trying to, he's trying, he's trying to get his first cash payday, I think out of his, um, his Tesla deliverables, which I think is about to hit, but yet yeah, holding stock value, um, which is what you're doing when you, when you're, when you're an early employee or uh, founder of a, a tech company, isn't the same as cash. And I think a lot of people in the dot-com bubble learned that the hard way when they thought they were sitting on 20 million bucks and they woke up and they're sitting in a Toyota Corolla the next day. Yeah, driving for Uber one day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. In an acquisition, like, um, you know, I don't have a lot of the details on my buddy Doug Song's uh, company at Duo, but, you know, I think he got a, I think he got a pretty fast payday. And, and uh, generally speaking, when you work for a company like, Cisco, you know, they want you to be there for a number of years post-transition, and there could be milestones associated with those paydays. But, um, you know, in a private acquisition, yeah, things could happen pretty fast, theoretically. Yeah, the trigger is is different because, yeah, versus an IPO where, and that's always the, I've seen folks even that are at companies and they, they get equity and then they go to an IPO. And a lot of them are like, they had, they literally were uneducated. They didn't educate themselves on what the experience would be like knowing that, Oh, okay. Yeah. You're, you're still vesting on top of that. You can't suddenly unload everything. Uh, it's, it's not a smooth and easy, simple, quick process. It's, and the worst was having them watch their E-Trade account dwindle away before their eyes over the months before they could actually exercise their, their shares. And you're like, Oh my God, I've, I just lost, uh, like $200,000 that I didn't have. I feel terrible. <laughs> I, I worked with this one guy, great guy. He's actually, a, he's an Irishman, but like a specialty, uh, like a Japanese 
tech sales executive. This is the craziest combination. That's Irish guy is fluent in Japanese. <laughs> um, great guy. Uh, he, he, he kind of an old G in the Valley when I was young. He was telling me stories and he was like, hey, Sean, you know, <laughs> there was this one day I was working for, I don't know, Sun Microsystems. I can't remember. And he got on a plane from San Francisco to, to Tokyo. And uh, yeah, he was sitting on something like 20x million dollars of stock. And when he landed, it was worth $30,000 in that, in that eight-hour period. And he's like, that was the most depressing moment of my life. <laughs> but he's basically trying to tell me, hey, this is a, this is a roller coaster. You, know, you don't know exactly what you're getting. He's giving me a great life lesson there. But um, yeah, I think I, I didn't have to live through that directly, but that had to be rough. When, when you bring somebody into the team, how do you prepare them for that roller coaster? Because uh, I'm curious in, especially in the early days, there's a, there's a leap of faith in both directions of number one, you're bringing somebody on that is going to very much influence the outcomes of the organization. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you also have to make it important for them to be that invested personally in the outcomes. Yeah, it, it, it's, um, I've hired a number of people that have been on this ride before. So that's, that's good to surround yourself with experienced folks and we have them at SignalWire. But for the comp, for the majority of the company, they haven't been on a startup ride before. And it is a constant reminder. It, it, verbally, we, we talk it out, you know, in all hands and informal conversations as we're propping around rooms. It's like, if you ha they have a bad day, you know, like, well, a customer will hit a bug. And the sales team works so hard to close that customer and they spend so much time invested and so much emotion invested. And, you know, the engineering team just missed the bug and that, you know, screwed the pooch on the customer relationship. And that's that can be really disheartening. And, you know, things like that happen in a startup. And as long as you learn from them and move forward, you know, that's a normal course. And it's a healthy course. And I think that's that's something that I constantly have to remind people of. We don't luckily we don't have a ton of bad days at SignalWire, but um, you know, when we do, it's like, even on the good days, it's like, hey, you know, we, we had one day, uh, we had our, our first um, six-figure day uh, you know, a little while ago, and uh, everyone was super stoked, and it's like, hey, hold on to this memory, but we, this is nothing, like, this is nothing. We still have a lot of way to go. So it's just a matter of flagging those moments, just reminding people that this is, this is not, you're not going to GM to make, you know, a, an axle. You know, we're making brand new stuff uh, for the future. No one knows exactly how this ride's going to be, but it's going to be interesting. Hold on. I've always been amazed, especially in the early day, like the first sales team and the first sales, you know, leaders that get into an organization like pre-product salespeople. They generally drive nice cars because they've succeeded because they they were ahead of the understanding of where the market needed to be and they got there. But uh, I've got a massive respect for folks that are in sales. I help to influence the outcomes and I sometimes wish I could get a little taste of the deal, but I also do not want the responsibility of being 100% in charge of the outcome. And if it goes wrong, there's no one to blame but yourself. It It, it is interesting. I mean, uh... In the Valley, if you're great at tech sales, you make a lot of money. You make more money than most engineers. And um, you could always see the little animosity sometimes. You know, you got an engineer that's 
working hard for, you know, a hundred grand a year and they see a sales guy roll off and a thing, but you know, really it is a part of the magic, like making sure that those guys bring deals and close them and motivated and they get compensated fairly for that action is really a part of the magic. And if you've got like my, my investors constantly remind like, you know, <laughs> they looked at, they looked at my sales compensation for the quarter and like, you know, I want your I want your top sales guys having a Rolex each quarter. And yeah. so, you know, next the Q1, we've got a Rolex uh, contest out there for for the sales team. And yeah, you, you keep these guys motivated at the same time. Um, same with engineers, same with key engineers. You know, they have to be working on something interesting and they have to feel like they're working on a product that's making a difference and that the code matters. And um, they they have a, a, a piece of the success. And so, you know, we 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 have a league. Um, you know, most employees in, at SignalWire have a, a chunk of the company and, you know, they know that they're in it um, for the long haul. When we look at that sales and the engineering dichotomy, it's uh, especially in those early days, it's it's so weird because they, effectively it's an engineering led business because you're so involved in product. And then as it makes the transition to the sales is now going to the engineers going, okay, folks, uh, I need this thing. And they're like, not in the backlog. Who are you? Why did you just drive up in a Panamera? Uh, and right. <laughs> so, but what happens is eventually they do see that bi-directional flow and they, they kind of value each other. It's how do you find those early transitions? Cause you know, you've, you've been through that, those phases a couple of times. That's where great product management comes in, like being that gap. I mean, the product managers, like, well, again, this is old school, but I embedded myself when I was a product manager. I embedded myself with the salespeople. Like, I didn't really like to drink, but I went out drinking with those guys, like as much as I could. I went out drinking with those guys, and you know, building relationships with the sales guys and just learning uh, uh, their mantra. You know, getting a rapport with them and knowing that uh, building a relationship where they could trust that I would represent their interests. And then doing the same thing with the engineers, you know, the engineers know that, hey, you're 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 going to be their protective barrier, you know, when these sales guys come breathing down their neck and you're going to be their excuse uh, so they can funnel everything towards you. And um, yeah, and if you master that art right um, and you have a strong person in that role that can really uh, bridge that quickly and. Without it, it's actually chaos. You know, without a strong product role, you'll you'll have sales directly going to engineering. Engineering will be super frustrated because um, you know sales will be like, "This is a three million dollar deal," and they'll bust, you know, to get it out in a week, and then it never closes. And they're like, "Oh, you cry wolf all the time." I'm not. I'm not. So that's where a strong product management comes in because engineering can trust them, sales can trust them, and uh, yeah, it can help coordinate. Yeah, it'd be. I don't need, I don't want to have to teach my engineers what's strong upside and, uh, you know, I don't, they shouldn't have to know, they should understand generally, but that's where the product management can be much tighter bound to both sides of the organization. And, and it is, uh, I, it's a, I like guess it's a great opportunity, but it's also, it's a, no one, it, it would be, it's like Mike Tyson, you know, like it's, he says, I don't like getting hit but I do it for a living, right? Or, you know, all these guys, like people would say, like, you just get used to it. Like, no, I, I don't get used to it. I just have to do it. Uh, and product management, I find, is a beautiful 
opportunity, but it is mostly thankless. Yeah. <laughs> so it's tough it really to is. make somebody incented to like, I need you to go in here. I think the t-shirt that I said one time, it said product management is like riding a bike, except the bike's on fire and you're on fire and everything's on fire. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I, I, I volunteer uh, on the island as an EMT. And uh, it kind of feels like a product manager a lot because it's equally thankless. Like you, you're not the you're not the person who's on the phone with the person when they're having a problem. That's the nine one one dispatcher. You get there, they don't really know your name. You're helping them out for a short period of time when they're en route to the hospital, and then the doctor and nurses save them or whatever. And uh, although you every everything you may have been doing for that entire ride was critical to their uh, livelihood, um, they don't know. And it's just completely passive. And some, sometimes, you know, your role in a product organization is like that because, you know, you might not be the product marketing person. You may not be the person out in front, you know, evangelizing. You may be just behind the scenes, but uh, doesn't make it less critical. So it brings a good point. How do you, how do you inspire yourself to that experience, right? And that, that's a great example, right? You literally, you can you know, say, save somebody from a situation, even where it's not like a true life saving necessarily, but you're rescuing them in a sense from a thing that could have been critical for them. And even sometimes they don't even get a chance to say thank you. So how do you weigh the understanding that you've had an impact, but also not crave it and need it? Because it's hard, right? Especially as a founder, you can't be looking for adoration and in a way you actually have to push it away because you have to stay focused on not getting it all the time because you want the business to get the adoration, not you. Yeah. I think that's, that's a tough thing for certain individuals. And I, I candidly, I think when I first started my career, I was very focused on self ego and, um, you know, kind of thought about how, how can I position myself, uh, you know, as a character, um, that kind of, I imagined, you know, the trajectory I wanted to be. And, you know, as I kind of grew up, I realized, like, keep keep my eye on the prize here. Like, what's the prize? Like, the prize is to build a great company or build a great product. And um, really, like, claiming glory for that or claim, what does that really do for you? I mean, almost nothing. And and when you can set aside ego, and I, I'm not saying I fully set aside my ego. I, I work to to do that all the time. But when you can set aside your ego, I think it's easier to work with people because you're not you're not struggling against this, you know, kind of fictitious barrier that you've separated for, you know, some ulterior motive. You could just kind of focus on what matters. And, and, um, you know, for this startup, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm, uh, me and another person founded it. Um, we made a decision that he was the CEO, you know, that's, that's an ego decision that, and that's fine. Like he, um, that's, uh, he is the right person to be the CEO of this company and it's his baby. And I'm fully supportive of that concept. And I think that that's in, 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 you know, our, our, we have another technical founder that's kind of the, the face of the company with engineers and he can speak to engineers and it's the right thing for a development company. And so I think understand your, your, your strengths, you know, at the time you're in and uh, yeah, live it without, try to live it without ego. And it's especially, I find that, you know, you're uh, my age has given me the the patience to know that I'll I'll get through bad stuff and it'll be okay. I'll get through good stuff and I shouldn't let it 
influenced me so much. But those early days are are challenging, which is you know why I always look at folks that are getting started and they're like like they're heading straight for the ego moment and you're like no 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 trust me <laughs> you're gonna go through some tough stuff for a while you're not aiming for the right thing like yeah if you're aiming for ego stuff you're not aiming for the right thing and and one thing that i'm curious and i often say this and the most of my greatest successes have been despite advice not because of it how many times have you been told that what you're about to do is a pretty fundamentally terrible idea? And how does almost that... every time, almost yeah. every time, like I almost <laughs> never listen to anyone else. I mean, there goes to the ego <laughs> sense a little bit, but it's, it's my own life here. And, um, who like, you got to make your own choices, I guess, get in, be, be surround yourself by good people. So you have good information to make your choices, but, um, no one knows the right answer. No one knows the pathway you should take on your life. And yeah, I just, I, so many people, oh, every decision I've made, there's been uh, significant prominence of people denying uh, the likelihood of success. And, uh, you know, those are people that they didn't have, they really didn't have the balls to do with themselves. It's most a- of the time. And the funny thing too is hindsight is so much 2020. And you know, even I remember when they, you know, one of the books that's sort of famous, like well, read Built to Last. Like you know that every business in Built to Last has painfully exited the business that they touted their success in. <laughs> right. So if you look at it as an essay, five years later, this is an amazing, you know, inspiration. Twelve years later, whoo, that wasn't such a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I guess if, if we look at it in the period, and that's where like the pivoting and, and other things come into play, it's uh, it's good. So if you had, if you had the lesson to give, if you went to twelve year old you and said, "I've got an idea," what what does forty year old Sean tell twelve year old Sean? I don't know. I, I I think fundamentally, if you want to start a company, keep moving, just keep going, and I I. I I think I was lucky enough to hold on to that idea because you're going to hit failures and you're like you said, like so many naysayers around anyone that's trying to do something against the grain. And um, yeah, I mean, the classic is haters going to hate, but you know, people don't like the fact that you can be independent, that you don't have to rely on the man or whatever that their life is subject to. And so you're, you don't always get great advice, especially if you're not in Silicon Valley. And uh, yeah, plow through those failures and keep going. And if you're the type of person that's halfway competent and is persistent at plowing through failures, you will hit. Something will hit. Yeah. And even if you're not necessarily the founder or the creator, you can have influence on the outcome. And and being part of that team is uh, as rewarding for most people. It's... Uh, uh, yeah, a lot of people sort of get the sense like, oh, if you're not the owner of the company, you're not getting the value out of it. That's and that's absolutely not true. No, I mean, my eight years at Barracuda, I was not the owner of the company. I had a very, very, very small piece of the company, but the experience I got from it was better than any Harvard education. Amen to that. Excellent. Well, Sean, thank you very much. This has been fantastic. Uh, for folks that want to 
of course, if they want to find out about SignalWire, which we, I, I feel bad. I didn't spend enough time talking about SignalWire. You guys are fantastic. Uh, Platform-wise is incredible. Uh, I have a feeling you'll talk about it more after you use it. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not too worried about it. That is the, uh, so there we go. That's the, that's my, my pre shout out uh, because I want to also give you a huge thanks because we talked at the start about, you know, we won't, competitive is always a weird thing. And I literally brought you onto a platform who, when you are in the platform of doing what I'm doing to record. Uh, so I'm excited to be able to kick the tires on it uh, firsthand. And also the event side of it was really, really cool because I do a ton of stuff with digital events mm -hmm. and the potential uh, is very, very strong for a much better human experience through a digital medium. And I think that's what we need to get to next. So uh, yeah, I'll be happy to talk about it. People should try it. Uh, we're we're giving you 30 day evaluations to everybody at signalwire.com and you can just check it out for a month. We, we the online events, we're, we're going to launch a school product and a broadcast product. And uh, what we're mostly hawking right now is a digital office alternative, the way we work every day. Yeah, I like the cantina idea. That's really cool. Uh, the signal wire work, of course, is where uh, where f folks can go. And also, thank you for having pricing right on your website. <laughs> yeah, I hate <laughs> that. There's nothing worse than you go to some goofy SaaS startup and it's like dollar sign call. Like, look, I can go to SpaceX and I can find out how much it costs to ship my coffee mug to the space station. Yeah. I sure as hell should be able to figure out how much your goofy SaaS startup costs. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, if you're, we're, we're kind of unique in the way on our, on our API business, you can log in and start going right away. Like you could start sending thousands of text messages or, you know, systematically connect your application to for make phone calls without talking to a human. So, um, yeah, I fundamentally believe like you don't throw those barriers in front of the sale where you, where you can help it. Well, uh, in a digital world, you are uh, a fantastic human, Sean. Thank you very much for taking the time today. And, yeah, uh, thanks for hosting me. It's been very interesting. Very cool.